Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today, we'll look into the U.S.-China trade relations with the example of a U.S.-based company, Dragon Lady Traders, which imported clothing from China in the 1970s. Dr. Elizabeth Inglison from the London School of Economics and Political Science will tell us about her book, which analyzes the challenges of U.S.-China trade relations and the importance of both the textile industry in Hong Kong to China's reintegration with global capitalism. Dr. Inglison was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "Dragon Lady Traders of the 1970s." How the U.S. and China rebuilt a trade relationship through textiles and Hong Kong. First, it explores the growth of trade in the late now era of the late 1960s and 1970s, of which there has been remarkably little attention until recently. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, China had maintained small levels of trade with foreign nations, especially the Soviet Union and the Third World. From the late 1950s, China also began to trade with some capitalist nations, such as Japan, Britain, and West Germany. But it was only during the 1970s that Mao began to increase China's overall levels of trade for the first time since the communist victory in 1949. And it was China's engagement with advanced capitalist democracies, not members of the socialist world, that drove this growing trade. Now, at first, these changes were only slowly perceptible. In 1969, China's total trade stood at 3.8 billion, about the same that China's foreign trade had been in the 1950s and 1960s. In 1971, this had risen to an all-time high of 4.8 billion. By 1974, the value of trade had skyrocketed to a further 14 billion. China's total trade remained around this level until 1978, when it jumped, as you can see in the image, to 21 billion, and from there it continued to rise, persisting well into the 21st century. China's growing trade in the 1970s was central to its convergence with the capitalist world. It provided China with technology. It assisted China's economic development. It led China to expand its trade institutions, such as trade fairs and advertising outlets, and most importantly, it was entwined with the second dynamic that I focus on in the book. It is often taken for granted by scholars whose primary focus is on China, and that is changes within U.S. capitalism itself. Because in order for China to converge with global capitalism. The United States and its economy needed to accommodate China's needs too. For 20 years, the U.S. economy had been underpinned by a Cold War division between capitalism and communism. In fact, U.S.-China trade was the ultimate casualty of the economic Cold War, blocked by a strict embargo since the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. The small amount of trade that did flow between the United States and other communist nations was understood in binary terms as east-west trade, not integrated ones. In the 1970s, this binary remained in place, but elements of it began to soften when it came to trade with China. In 1971, the United States finally lifted its 21-year trade embargo. 
And China began to be seen not through the Cold War lens of communist threat, but instead through the lens of capitalist profit. And this was often despite the fact that profit did not always or readily materialize for many business people in this decade. In most parts of the world, the Cold War ended in the late 1980s when the Soviet Union dissolved and the US-led vision of neoliberal capitalism became the key organizing principle for social development. But in the case of US-China relations, the Cold War ended without systemic collapse in either nation. Instead, Cold War divisions between these two nations fizzled out during the 1970s to a gradual convergence between the Chinese state and US capitalists. So in addition to asking why China converged with global capitalism then, I'm interested in the reverse too. Why did US capitalists start to incorporate China, the world's largest communist nation, into their visions of the future? And what did these visions look like? The answers to these questions require us to look at China's convergence with global capitalism as a multi-directional process that involved decisions both within and beyond China itself. Scholars are beginning to show the importance of neighboring countries such as Hong Kong and, Sin and Singapore to this integration. Many emphasize the role of overseas Chinese people in bringing China into the capitalist system. But in order to understand these dynamics more fully, we need to look also at the largest and most powerful player in the capitalist economy at the time, the United States. The capitalist system with which China began to converge was not static, but instead a shifting dynamic arrangement that itself underwent significant transformations in the 1970s. And the changes within the United States lay at the heart of many of these developments. The book focuses in particular on US business people and corporations such as Veronica Yap and her dragon lady traders who you see in the bottom left-hand corner here and we'll come to in a minute. And it's in this period in the 1970s that for the first time since the Korean War, business people from across the United States began to jockey for visas and insights into a trade market the European and Japanese rivals had had access to for years. Large multinational corporations like Walmart and Apple would, by the end of the 20th century, come to be most associated with US-China trade. Yet it was the new generation of US business people in the 1970s, including Veronica Yap, Charles Abrams, and David Rockefeller, who paved their way. And maverick entrepreneurs and suited executives from huge US corporations are not the usual protagonists in the histories of 1970s US-China relations. Instead, President Nixon and Chairman Mao and the elite policymaking they represent have dominated the narratives of bilateral relations in this era, just as Nixon and Kissinger quickly turned their gaze back to geopolitics after adjusting trade rules. So too have historians devoted only passing interest to the trade relationship that unfolded. 
This lack of attention to US business people who traded with China in the 1970s is partly because the value of trade was tiny, only around $2 billion by the end of the decade. When we look at trade in qualitative rather than quantitative terms, however, and when we focus on business people and corporations, we see this fundamental transformation in the bilateral relationship that ultimately had long-term repercussions for global capitalism and labor. By drawing together China's expansion of trade with the economic changes happening within the United States, I argue that China's convergence with global capitalism took shape in the 1970s because some US business people, with the encouragement of Chinese policymakers, began to see trade with China as a means of accessing cheap labor rather than a place to absorb US goods. In the process, they reconfigured what it meant to even speak of US-China trade. Over the course of the 1970s, business people from the United States and policymakers in China worked together to transform the very meaning of the China market from a place to sell US goods to a site instead of cheap labor. Now this was a very significant reimagining of how trade should operate. And it lay at the heart of China's integration with the capitalist order. It was a transformation that was profoundly shaped by the wider economic and political changes occurring in both nations in the 1970s. As the patterns of global trade shifted and US corporations increasingly outsourced their manufacturing to cheaper overseas labor, some business leaders saw China as holding the potential to not only join, but also assist in this process. For their part, pragmatists within the Chinese Politburo experimented with ways of increasing their exports to fund their purchases of industrial goods. Both groups were met with considerable opposition from within their nations, but their efforts nonetheless prevailed. And for hundreds of, hundreds of years, however, US-China trade looked very different. Since first contacts in the 18th century, U.S. merchants had understood trade with China to mean expanding their exports. Throughout the United States and Europe, the imagined possibility of a vast landmass teeming with potential customers compel business people to trade with China. In the early 20th century, Missouri ad man Carl Crow encapsulated this idea with his 1937 best-selling book, based upon his 25 years living and working in China. Its evocative title quickly saw 400 million customers become a metonym for the potential profits to be made from trade with China. In the 1970s, some US business people and their Chinese counterparts began to see a new promise, 800 million workers as well. They not only imported items such as porcelain, robes, and tapestries, which had overt links to China, but they also began to purchase shirts, shoes, and gloves that did not have obvious connections to China itself. Encouraged by Chinese traders and pragmatists who were keen on increasing their exports, 
They together reconfigured the very meaning of the China market. Just 30 odd years after Crow published his best-selling book, US business people uh, alongside Chinese traders began to transform the centuries-long vision of a China market filled with 400 million proverbial customers into one of 800 million workers instead. And the transformation of the China market from 400 million customers to 800 million workers was enabled, I show, by three interconnected factors. A cultural change in which China was reconceived from red China to an amicable trade partner to a made-in-China partner. It was propelled by different diplomatic approaches to how trade could be used to assist geopolitical negotiations. And it was underpinned by economic transformations in both nations. And all three of these factors I show intersected in ways that ultimately reconfigured very meaning and practice of US-China trade. Now, in the book, I focus on all three of these dynamics and the ways that they played out uh, amongst themselves and together in the 1970s. But I'm going to focus on the story of Veronica Yap and the ways that her actions and her decisions help us see the intersection of two of these factors, the cultural and economic factors uh, occurring uh, in this era. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Dr. Elizabeth Inglison from the London School of Economics and Political Science telling us some background of the US-China relationship and the textile company Dragon Lady Traders. Next, she will continue to explore the importance of both the textile industry and Hong Kong to China's reintegration with global capitalism. The US ping pong team had just been invited to China in, on April 6th. And a week later, on April 13, President Nixon had removed some restrictions on trade with China. From her Fifth Avenue apartment in Manhattan, Veronica Yap, an architect in her early 30s, had been following the nightly bulletins and newspapers as they filled with news of ping pong diplomacy and easing trade and travel restrictions with China. Born in Shanghai to a wealthy family, Yap and her parents fled to Hong Kong on the eve of the Chinese Communist Party's victory in 1949. After she finished school, she flew to the United States to study architecture at Mills College in Oakland, California, before moving again to New York City, where she completed graduate studies at Columbia University. She remained in New York, where she worked as an architect and met her husband, Nestor Yap, an engineer at IBM. As Nixon lifted the barriers to trade with China, Veronica Yap imagined a role for herself in the newly opening trade relationship. She had a wardrobe filled with Chinese jackets and dresses that she had bought years ago when visiting family in Hong Kong. In recent months, she'd received several compliments when she wore them. And while some Americans remained wary of red China, 
the high-end fashion world coveted Chinese clothing. The appeal was compounded by the fact that this latest trend came to Fifth Avenue via France. Grey and blue workers' uniforms were bestsellers at Paris's Galerie de Lafayette, the New York Times reported in its fashion pages in August. Parisian crowds were particularly eager to buy workers' suits that had been made in China, which they felt, and I quote, had a special cachet of authenticity. So seeking to capitalise on the excitement for Chinese fashion, Yap spoke with executives at Bloomingdale's and Abram and Strauss to gauge their interest in stocking Chinese clothing in their department stores. She brought with her the clothes she had in her own wardrobe. Would they be interested, she inquired, in selling such goods in their stores? The executives jumped at the opportunity. Soon after, Yap telegrammed a friend in Hong Kong, Winnie Yong, whom she had met in California as a student at Mills College. The department stores were interested and they wanted samples as soon as Yung could send them from Hong Kong. Yap and Yung, along with two other friends, soon set up a company. Dragon Lady Traders. Yap had decided, decided on the name in haste. Dragon Lady had been her nickname in college. It was a character, Dragon Lady, in a popular adventure comic of the late 1930s, Terry and the Pirates. Coming in the context of growing Japanese aggression, the Chinese heroine blended danger, strength, and erotic allure. She could be a damsel in distress while also bravely fighting Japanese fascism. And these contradictions work together to reinforce the trope of a tough yet delicate Asian woman in American popular culture. By the mid-1970s, a few years after establishing Dragon Lady Traders, Yap thought about changing its name to something she reflected a little more dignified. Yet her lawyers and business partners resisted, feeling that this would ultimately undermine the name recognition they had built. Yap had reworked the trope into a profitable brand. And one of the key benefits of this approach, Yap acknowledged, was that Dragon Lady Traders brought an additional significance. It's also meaning it's run by, it's a company run by a woman, she added after some consideration. And we like that. The company offered American consumers a familiar and therefore unthreatened way of conceptualizing China. Connecting goods from communist China to these largest asso larger associations of Asian femininity, Yap's Dragon Lady traders helped instigate a cultural reconfiguration of China from red threats to a source of familiar racialized gender norms. Yap was one of the first Americans to travel to China in late 1971, before Nixon. She, like all foreign business people, travelled to Guangzhou for the twice-yearly Canton Trade Fair, where China conducted almost half its total trade in this era. When she returned to the United States, her goods sold out almost instantly. American consumers were so excited, she recounted, if we run out of large, they'll take medium, and if, we, if they run out of medium, they'll take small. It's incredible, she gasped. 
She brought back used used mouse suits that retailed for $130, which she noted were, and I quote, popular in colleges. Advertising Chinese jackets and workers' uniforms as exotic Maoist commodities, Yap and other US importers helped reconfigure larger public ideas about China's communism. For university students, the appeal lay in purchasing signifiers of radical politics, the commodification of dissent, as historian Thomas Frank has put it. But the real impact of these items was not radical at all. On the contrary, the imported Maoist goods helped depoliticize how liberal Americans thought about China's communism. At a time when Andy Warhol began producing his iconic portraits of Mao Zedong, this was an era of the kitschification of China's revolution. No longer a threat, China's communism could be a mere fashion statement. U.S. importers and the goods they sold were essential to the changing public perceptions of the United States' former Cold War foe. Yap and other U.S. importers who traded with China in the 1970s helped transform the way American consumers thought about China's communism from a Cold War threat to a site of everyday consumer products. As trade began in the early 1970s, importers emphasised China's exotic past, echoing patterns of U.S. trade with China of the 18th of, of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, they transformed, as Yap did, China's communist presence into a desirable fashion item. And these cultural changes paved the way for increased consumer interest in and acceptance of Chinese imports of all kinds. By the middle of the decade, these two dynamics, the exotic China and quotidian goods, began to operate together within the same marketing campaigns. In other words, importers began to uh, uh, capitalise upon and draw upon the exotic of China in order to sell everyday items uh, such as T-shirts or shoes or, in, um, in fact, tapestry matching kits, which I explore in the book. And by 1974, Yat too was using the brand of Dragon Lady traders to diversify from Mao jackets to items such as men's shoes, that were made in China uh, uh, according to her own uh, specifications. You can see the um, extraordinary 1970s um, fashion here on display. So Veronica Yap would go on to pioneer arrangements whereby Chinese traders manufactured clothing according to her specifications. The cultural changes she was a part of in the early 1970s, celebrating China trade, helped importers sell Chinese goods of all kinds. By the middle of the decade, several companies, including Dragon Lady traders, used this uh, interest in an exotic China to advertise everyday uh, imports. Shirts, shoes and gloves, whose only connections to China were labels declaring made in China. As US business and fashion elites exoticized their new trade partner, they helped promote a cultural acceptance of the word China appearing on the labels of everyday consumer goods. 
But this was not, of course, a linear change. Uh, there are plenty of examples of consumers boycotting uh, Chinese goods uh, and boycotting companies that stocked Chinese goods. In 1978, for example, the leading US business organization for China trade still had to remind its own members that the term Red China was, I quote, unacceptable to the Chinese. So the transition from Red China to Made in China was, was uneven. Yet throughout the 1970s, US capitalists and importers set in motion a remarkable evolution in how US consumers understood the erstwhile Cold War enemy. This shifting landscape of US-China trade from Red China to Made in China and from 400 million customers to 800 million workers was highly contingent and uncertain and very few predicted that the relationship would boom anytime soon. Throughout the decade, most Americans interested in trade focused their attention not on China but on Japan and its impact on the United States. One economist, Branko Milanovic, reflecting in the early 21st century on the projections that his economist peers had made in the 1970s, has recently noted that, and I quote, China is remarkable by its absence in these books. No one took notice of China yet. But there was, in fact, one key group of Americans who loudly and consistently paid attention to China's economic potential well before economists and policymakers of the 21st century. From the very reopening of trade ties in the early 1970s, organized US labor representatives and workers, especially in the textile industry, warned of the impact that trade with China would have if greater industry safeguards were not implemented. Their concerns came in a volatile context when US imports of manufactured goods were rising, manufacturing employment was decreasing, and the combined effects of skyrocketing inflation and unemployment spurred a new concept of stagflation. As workers and organized labor in the United States protested the ways the increasingly globalizing world was emerging, they saw China as holding the potential to exacerbate these dynamics. And their efforts culminated in a landmark petition launched in late 1977 for quotas on imported cotton work gloves. This was the first time that US manufacturers had attempted to limit Chinese goods since the Communist Party came to power. Rather, the case also revealed a new dynamic emerging in the global economy they had profoundly important repercussions for China's reforms, US workers, and US-China trade more broadly. Around 60% of all cotton work gloves imported from China were purchased by companies, US companies, that also manufactured them. So in other words, the majority of US corporations calling for restrictions on Chinese gloves were the very same corporations purchasing the imports from China. As they struggled to keep their factories open during a period of widespread deindustrialization, especially in the textile industry, managers began to decrease their production of this kind of glove, cotton work gloves, and they replaced them with imports. 
In so doing, they hoped to save on costs and continue making other more complex types of gloves, at least temporarily. So as they were altering their own production processes, US manufacturers themselves began to see the China market as a source of inexpensive labor. What they wanted most of all from the quotas was market order. They needed time to make the adjustments to using Chinese labor. The decisions of US manufacturers reveals that a crucial component of China's convergence with the capitalist trading system was the change that was occurring in US corporations and the global division of labor that came with it. As Chinese leaders experimented with ways to lift their population out of poverty, this came at the expense of minimum wage textile workers in the United States and later other industries as well. That was Dr. Elizabeth Inglison from the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.